It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that makes a splash is on the Mermaid Podcast. Hello, you're listening to the Mermaid Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Von Holt, the fairy boss mother of Cinderly. Hi, mer friends. First things first, we have big news for the Mermaid Podcast. For longtime listeners, no, unfortunately, this is not an interview with Channing Tatum. That dream has not yet been realized, but we have some other very good news. The Mermaid Podcast is now a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. What is that? Well, good lucky for you, the Frolic Podcast Network is a podcast community of everything romance and romance related, and you know that I write romance and that the Mermaid Podcast is a big fan of love stories and everything that goes around them. Um, also, some of our favorite podcasts are also a part of this network, so this is a dream come true for us to join. Uh, this is definitely a benchmark goal for me when I started the Mermaid Podcast. I was like, ooh, okay, as like a good mermaid capitalist, I want to have a, join a cool ad network at some point and like and get ads and be a part of like a really cool team of people that like collaborate and spread the word about each other. And that's exactly what the Frolic Podcast Network is. Uh, so I'm very, very excited. Um, and what does this mean for you, our fabulous community of listeners. Well, all it means is that there's going to be more shows for you to enjoy and more opportunities for us to introduce you to great episodes and new podcasts that you will love. So I'm going to be introducing you to the other podcasts in the network, um, and it means I'll get to talk to cool people that I already like. Um, and so I'm just very, very excited that the Frolic Podcast Network noticed how cool the Mermaid Podcast is, but it would not be possible without you, our wonderful listeners. Um, I really couldn't have done it without all of your support and um, building up the podcast to where it is now. So let's get excited for more people to learn about the Mermaid Podcast and more people to talk about cool mermaid things. And if you want to check out the Frolic Podcast Network, you can find new shows to add to your podcast subscriptions at frolic.media slash podcasts. Okay, we have a... Very great interview for you today. So sometimes I end up in like a deep Google rabbit hole late at night. Um, and that is precisely what led me to find Persephone Bram. And I'm very excited for this interview because Persephone is a professor of Latin American literature and culture at the University of Delaware. So, you know, no big deal. Not like just an amazing credit. Um, so I love when I find like the best expert to talk to me about something. So Persephone is also the author of the book From Amazon to Zombies, Monsters in Latin America, and a paper entitled Song of the Serenas, Mermaids in Latin America and the Caribbean. So obviously the minute I saw that title, I was like, how do I get that paper? Um, I read it. I was, my mind was blown. I was so excited by all the things I had learned. You know, not everyone thinks reading an academic journal about merfolk is like the best time, but I thought it was a great way to spend a Wednesday night. Maybe not Saturday night, but a Wednesday night for sure. So in this interview, I asked Persephone to give me an introduction to everything that she knows about mermaids in Latin America and the Caribbean, um, history, folklore, all of it. And as usual, we went all the way in. We covered things I didn't even know we would talk about. Um, it, it went everywhere. It was so good. So since this interview is so long, um, 
you know, take your time, maybe stop and Google things. Like it's a, it's a very in-depth interview. Um, but uh, if you want to look at any of the photos or things that we talked about, they are going to be on the website. Um, and I just, I hope you are as into it as I am. So here we go. My name is Persephone Bram and I teach Latin American literature and culture at the university of Delaware. And uh, I'm the author of From Amazons to Zombies, which is a book about um, how monsters were used from Amazons to zombies, including mermaids and vampires, <laughs> uh, to define Latin America and its problems um, in literature. So um, basically, I'm a monster specialist, <laughs> and I teach my course. <laughs> my courses cover like a lot of different areas, but um, that's what my research is on. Uh, principally. And I'm also, I sort of focus on the Caribbean. Okay. Um, awesome. You're in the perfect place. <laughs> so <laughs> great. Um, so I found you because I was looking for um, experts on different mermaid legends around the world. And you have a paper um, that is about mermaids in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I was like, this is exactly what I've always wanted to read. Um, not everyone reads mermaid academic papers for fun, but I do. And um, I was like, great. Um, so I was reading your your work and I was very interested um I'm always interested in, in mermaid legends in general, but I was really interested in a lot of the things that you had to say about um, the portrayal of mermaids in artwork, like when they are portrayed as monsters versus beautiful women, um, the evolution of the look and the way that they are spoken of. And then you had some really amazing things to say about the etymology um, around words for mermaids. Um, but before we get into like the nerdiness of that, um, can you just give the people kind of a brief overview of like the history of mermaid mythology in Latin America and the Caribbean? Okay. So a lot of it is, is different because there's really different cultures throughout Latin America. Some are more Afro uh, Latin American, some are more indigenous Latin American, and some are more um, defined by European traditions. Um, so, uh, in the article that you refer to, I mainly talk about um, South American traditions and Caribbean traditions because those are two, I study the Caribbean traditions um, and essentially, and, and there's a, a lot of mermaid imagery in Andean um, art and, and culture. So um, basically mermaids, as, as we think of them, uh, came over with the Europeans. They they did not really. Many cultures, indigenous cultures, had some sort of a siren or mermaid or water spirit in their traditions. But it's very hard to pick out what was authentically part of their culture and what has been sort of inculcated in their culture by ethnographers and anthropologists yeah. asking them about mermaids. Right. Um, so much of what we know about indigenous mermaid or, or water spirits uh, is through ethnographers who started working in the 20th century um, in Patagonia, in, in Chile, Argentina. And um, it's actually rather interesting to watch how the mermaid aspect of these stories changes 
through the trajectory of their contact with the ethnographers, and it, it solidifies and becomes much more like a siren or a mermaid story. Interesting. So uh, it's you asked about, you know, sort of cultural transfer and how much this imagery is mixed, and I think it's it's not accurate, for instance, to say that mermaids are all over the place in Latin America. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Latin America is that the mermaid or siren figures that are in, that I've studied, are not evil. Oh, They're almost okay. always sort of wives and mothers, and the, the stories that are told about them, um, you know, follow the, the, the discarded wife, you know, they've been categorized by the, by ethnographers uh, and, um, and folklorists. And they, they mostly have to do with a faithful wife who is treated badly or uh, a woman who takes care of the fishing village and makes sure that their fish is um, abundant. And lately, they're changing to become sort of emblems of environmental um, activism. Mm-hmm. So there's pinkoi in, in Chile, which is used to uh, advocate against overfishing of the salmon population and so on. So then in the Caribbean, there's a whole different tradition, which is an Afro-Latin um, tradition, which has to do with the um, Yoruba religion, religious figures, the Orishas, and particularly with the water deities, Yemaya and Oshun, uh, and Agwe. So, and so backing up, these, since we speak Romance languages in most of Latin America, we use the word sirena, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is siren in English, um, and, and not mermaid. But siren and mermaid have two very different meanings now. I think today, for yeah. us, sirens have sort of a vampy, femme fatale kind of connotation, and mermaids, you know, wear a little shell bra and yeah. are cute. <laughs> and and sirens kind of have that connotation harking back to like uh, like Odysseus and the like bird right. harpish women and then and mermaids are like like friendly and alluring but also environmentally conscious. Yes, the nice fish ladies. Yeah. So I studied um I've I've been talking about mermaids. I've given a couple of talks recently about the evolution of mermaid iconography mm-hmm. from um ancient Greece through, you know, up through the Western images and into the present day. And it's very interesting to me to, to you know, ask the question, how do we get from the, the bird women diving down on, Olys- on um, Ulysses or Odysseus to the Little Mermaid, to Ariel, yeah. right? How do we make that transition? And it's really fascinating because what happened was in the Middle Ages, starting around the 6th century, Historians in Spain and encyclopedists in Spain were dealing with this pagan iconography and pagan, what they thought of as mythology or pagan history, Uh and trying to see how it matched up with Christian moral values. Uh And in that process, they were evaluating what are sirens? What do these sirens mean? And so... You see in medieval images of sirens, they alternate between bird women and fish women. Sometimes they have all of the attributes. They have wings and tails. Sometimes they have tails 
that are feathers and not scales, and sometimes they have wings with scales. So, and you have the two-tailed siren, of course. And so the, the consensus in the Middle Ages is the door of Seville and um, Paulus Orosius, or Orosio in Spain, in, he was known in Spain, was that uh, sirens symbolized temptation. So they, they actually, Isidore called them prostitutes. Oh. <laughs> and so they, they, the, the, the mirror, the comb, that, those are symbols of the siren's vanity. Her song was meant to lure unwary mar mariners right into the sea after them, and then they would eat them if they weren't satisfied with the sexual experience. <laughs> Right? Danger! But, the <laughs> yeah. but then as the Christians, you know, got their hold on this, it became, you know, the Christians, uh, Odysseus' journey through the Straits of Messina between Scylla and Charybdis with the sirens singing at him becomes the Christian journey um, on the path of virtue. Yeah. And you can't fall off the ship of virtue into the sea of temptation. Yeah. And if you do, your immortal soul will be lost. Yeah. So... Um, the images then of the siren get prettier as they get more and more kind of sexy and dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time Columbus gets to the Americas, he knows about the fishtail mermaid uh -huh. figures. And he knows that mermaids have been seen off the coast of Africa. And he sees three mermaids one day. He's some, on a river in Haiti, uh, present-day Haiti. And he's really disappointed. And he says, well, they're not as beautiful as they'd been painted. He <laughs> says, but to some extent, they look like a human being. <laughs> and, uh, and from that moment on, what we have in Spanish literature and history and philosophy is a discussion of whether these fish-tailed ladies exist, whether merpeople really exist. Right. Everybody knows about manatees, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And manatees are all over the place in the New World. Some, you know, cold-hearted people have said, well, Columbus was looking at manatees, right? Yeah. Um, so the question is, do the Spaniards, are they, you know, these, are they all, like, gullible medieval-minded people thinking that mermaids are real, or do they just call manatees sirenas, uh, right? And so they see sirenas all over the place, and they're reporting them all over the place. Right. But the word manatee at that point was sirena. Okay. Okay. Right? Well, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's so, like, is, is, are you, right, are you believing it's a mermaid, or are you just, like, nicknaming manatees for mermaids because they look like the thing from the myth? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So... So there is a Taino myth. Um, Tainos are the indigenous peoples of, of much of the Caribbean, and most of them were um, died off by about the middle of the 16th century um, from abuse, overwork, etc. But um, there is a story, um, a Taino story about. It's called Mato, the legend of Mato of Santo Domingo, and it's about a manatee raised by the, a Taino cacique, who's the local um, king, right, or lord, um, Karamatex. And uh, Karamatex trains Mato to eat from his hand, and he ferries them back and forth uh, from place to place. 
And so the whole community takes care of Mato. And they, this story, which was a story about a manatee that they domesticated, was taken by uh, a Spanish historian, Pedro Martir, uh, who then turned it into a, a Latin version, turned the name into a Latin version, Matum, which he def defined as noble and generous. Uh -huh. And he believed that manatee got into the dictionary from via uh, Pedro Martir's oh. story. So there we have this sort of siren manatee thing. Yeah. <laughs> Going yeah. on. Whoa, okay. Um, and then just a little more about the manatees, and I'll get back to the yeah. So it's very clear that right away they know they're dealing with manatees and not mermaids. Okay, so and in fact, in fact, Bartolome de las Casas, who's there, you know, 16th century, 50, late 15th, early 16th century, he says that um, that. They should be eaten. They're, they're, they taste like veal, right? <laughs> and another historian says um, that they are their fat is the best for frying eggs, <laughs> and they are recommended generally to be eaten on Good Friday and on Fridays generally because no one knows whether they're actually meat, so you can get away with eating oh, them. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Meanwhile. They're still being called sirenas all over the place. And there are stories um, of, off of Chile, um, which is an island off Chile, right? Yeah. Um, in 1632, the whole fishing village saw a beast approach them, and she had a baby, and she had hair that was long and flowing. And, um, you know, basically a woman from the waist up and the tail of a fish, uh -huh. and she was covered with scales. Uh -huh that look like little conches. So um, what we think of when we talk to indigenous or you know, isolated cultures about sirenas is, you know, they may have been looking at a manatee and known they were looking at a manatee, but... <laughs> Calling it this uh, the same exactly. name as a mermaid. I'm also just imagining now, like, if you went to a restaurant and they were like, oh, don't worry, we have mermaid fat to fry your eggs in. It's going to be super great. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Exactly. But, but that actually raises a good... Um, so so the as one of the aspects of American or, or Latin American mermaids, um, in particular, not the Caribbean so much, but continental, um, is that they have this domestic side they're always thought of as good wives and mothers, regardless of their place in whatever story it is. Uh -huh. And um, they don't have the femme fatale connotation at all that was that was imputed to mermaids and sirens by Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, that was an interesting point that I noticed when I was reading your paper is I've heard this um, and other things about uh, like the the kind of tradition of conversion of being like, okay, you have the Beltane, we'll match that with Easter, that works, like, you're, uh -huh. you're the party you already throw works well for, like, be, you know, it's easier to convert you if we can just match your party up with our religion. Um, and yes. so then the use of, or like, or the evolution of, of a mermaid or water spirit figure to, to also show Christian values or, like, or, or, or as a, model for conversion is like it's interesting 
Yes, yeah. and and what we see are uh, uh, in, indigenous um, artists were sort of enrolled in the project of evangelization, and they were often very good artisans, and they were given uh, images and engravings of the Virgin and Christ and and various you know various Christian settings yeah. to render in the many churches. All, all art in the colonial period of Latin America was religious. Uh-huh. Almost. Yes. Almost. We have yes. Other, we have one, a couple of exceptions. But, um, and so they would sneak mermaids in. They would sneak mermaids in to uh, a picture of Noah's Ark or a picture of the Immaculate Virgin um, because they... Some virgins had uh, serpents representing their their um, overcoming of, of Satan, uh-huh. right? And some uh, pictures had boats with fish in the water, and, and these indigenous artists would just put mermaids in. But that's so uh, cool. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and and one, one thing that I've um, found is that in, in Peru in particular, there's a whole body of contemporary... Um, I would say cra- art and craft mm-hmm. of they make these little retablos, which are little sort of tiny altars and altar pieces uh-huh. that have mer- they're full of mermaids. Yeah. So the the siren in those traditions is is also associated with water and music, uh-huh. and um, with bringing beautiful sounds from your guitar, your charango, mm-hmm. right? So they make these incredibly elaborate little altarpieces, often triptychs, that have mermaids holding charangos, which is a kind of sort of a lute-like guitar that also was a Spanish um, import, right? The more that they do this, the more it seems that the siren or sirena or mermaid is an indigenous tradition. Uh, And they also appear in folk art in Mexico, uh, and so I was talking to one of the artists, Claudio Jimenez, um, at, at an actually craft show, and I said, how is it that you have this mermaid iconography? I mean, where did this come from? There was this whole, there's a whole bunch of scholars who just kind of blithely say, oh, yes, well, they came over on ship's figureheads. Uh-huh. Well, nobody in, you know, South America was seeing ship's figureheads with mermaids on them. In the 16th, 17th, or 18th century. Yeah, where would they, right, where would they have, yeah. The Spanish Navy had only saints, Uh sometimes, really only saints and the lion rampant. Uh Other Navy, nobody had mermaids on their figureheads. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dutch, Dutch, the Dutch ships in the 19th century, some of them did, but they they were over mostly in the Pacific. So, um, it's highly unlikely that Highland Andean people would get down to the coast and see a boat with a mermaid figure. <laughs> right, right. So so that's fascinating. So then, so do you think the placement of a mermaid in that iconography, is that subversive or is that just like the way an artist places their own viewpoint into like creating, and creating like an... I mean, because on one hand, when you talk about like the Virgin Mary next to a mermaid, I'm, also, I'm almost thinking to a certain person, the mermaid could be more real than the Virgin Mary. If they already have a familiarity with it, you know, or if it's like part of their yeah, culture the, already. The, 
Yeah, you're, that's a great question. Yeah. But the figures that they're putting in are European mermaids. Oh, they're so putting they're European mermaids on with European, European Virgin Marys, but they're indigenous artists. Yes. That's right. mind-blowing. So, Why? <laughs> so the question is, do they think that a European mermaid is the same as a cherub or a... Oh, or, some other, you know, the, or like, it looks like a snake enough. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? Or But... I, I don't think they do. I don't think it's that innocent. Do you think, think it's a maternal thing? A what? Like a maternal a, thing? Like if you you said that the water spirits were kind of maternal good wives? Perhaps. Yeah. I do think it's somewhat subversive. I think that the European mermaid does speak to these artists, and we're looking at mostly at 16th and 17th century art. Yeah. Um, in a way that that perhaps the simple snake image doesn't, uh-huh, uh-huh. or they, they have to have a motive to be going around. There, there were rules about this. Yeah, there were rules about putting monsters in a picture with the Virgin or a biblical uh, oh. story of. Yeah, they, yeah, I didn't think about it. What are the rules? <laughs> exactly, and so the rules were: you can't have monsters in religious paintings. Oh, but right? they did it. <laughs> um, unless they're, you know, representing the apocalypse or something. Oh. Um, it's very strict. So I think there was a special meaning. These yeah. figures did have a special meaning or a special attraction for them, even though they weren't autochthonous. They weren't original necessarily to that culture. Okay. That's <laughs> so. so interesting. That also makes That's me think about, like, uh, this is a little uh, it's related, but uh, but like the role of folk art, uh, like as record, um, and also the idea of who is folk art for, like what's what's the audience that that like that this iconography is intended for, and like what's the audience of current mermaid folk art, like um, that is yeah the, the best question. Yeah. So the more this folk art gets out like Claudia Jimenez uh-huh. and Pedro Gonzalez from Peru. Yeah. There are whole families who have workshops um, manufacturing this um, sirena art in, in Peru and in, in, in the Andes. And they go on these circuits, right? And they sit, people love the mermaid art. Yeah. It's like people love the Mexican skeleton art. Yeah. It doesn't mean at this point they make is what's what sells, right? Right, right. It's it's like why you make a little. I, I'm from Hawaii. It's why we have all the little hula dancer dolls at the airport. Like that's not what people actually think of for hula. There, it's just like that's what everyone wants to take home with them is the little doll. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think at this point, um, you know, in this century, with the diffusion of images and and the global market for for art and for folk art. Uh-huh. People make what sells. Mm-hmm. So we can't consider, that's why I love your question, we cannot consider it a record or a reflection of um, some sort of ancient cultural aspect of yeah. and, uh, people. Yeah. Uh, so we have to be careful. Now, that said, there's a lot of places where the, the mermaid and the siren really do have a very um, authentic original religious significance and that is mostly caribbean okay so yeah let's talk about that because you also mentioned a few like mermaid myths that were in the in the the afro-latin tradition i think in your paper but yeah let's talk about mermaids in the caribbean (laughs) so mermaids in the caribbean 
are unbelievably powerful. Yes, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to throw out a lot of names here. Okay. But in Afro-Caribbean religions, there's the figure of Yemaya, who is the queen of the oceans. She is. She has a lot of different values attached to her. She's one of the most powerful Orishas of the Orishas, or um, Orishas, of which are deities that are bound iconographically to Christian saints in Afro-Latin American religions. So, um, examples of Afro-Latin American religions are Candomblé in Brazil, Vodou in Haiti. What we call Santeria, it, it's, Santeria is kind of a not the best term, but it's in Cuba it's called Regla de Ocha, the rule of Ocha. Um, or Palo de Palomonte. Okay. So there's all different names for, you know, slightly different variations of this Afro-Latin um, American syncretic kind of religion. And the reason it's called Santeria, broadly, is because it's Saint, Saint Maria, uh, right? Okay. okay, there you <laughs> so, go. <laughs> um, because the Orishas, or, or deities, the African Yoruba deities, ha always have a Catholic Christian counterpart in the saints. So Yemaya is particularly powerful in Brazilian culture and in Cuban and uh, Haitian culture in particular. So in, in starting with, I guess, um, Haiti, let me go to Haiti first. Um, Haiti has a figure called La Sirene. She has a million different names, and there's, I know I'll get something wrong because there's so many nuances and so many, this is, like most popular and syncretic religions, these deities shift around a little bit. They have different versions of their names, and people attach different meanings to them. Okay. So I can't say with 100% authority that X is Y when we, when we talk about these. But... Um, so there's this image um, of, I'm looking at my, my Haitian pictures now. Um, I'll start with Mamiwata. She's a pretty recent image. Okay. Mamiwata uh, is a, a woman with, um, she's got golden pants and a great big snake and lots of black flowing hair. And she is a relatively modern African um, deity is associated with snakes and water. Can you define modern for your context? I think modern for mine might be, what would you consider modern? 20th century. Okay. 20th century. Okay, great. <laughs> Just <to> make sure. <laughs> <laughs> so she represents a consolidation of numerous water, de water deities from Western Africa. But Mami Wata traditions have been documented in Suriname, Haiti, Martinique, all over, like a lot of the Caribbean, especially the French Caribbean, where she goes under the name of La Sirene. Okay. And she's also mapped through that to Yemaya. Okay. Okay. Um, now, so Mamiwata is called in Haiti Haida Wedo, um, and she appears on voodoo banners. She often appears getting married um, to Agwe, who is the god of under the water. See, uh -huh. in Latin America, they don't just have one sea. 
god. They have gods of rivers, gods of or goddesses of rivers, lagoons, um, under the ocean, on top of the ocean, okay. storms. Um, okay. So they have a whole pantheon. So Mamiwata has been uh, become as the face of Erzali Yamaya La Siren. Okay. Another figure we see a lot is La Siren, looking like a woman with a with a uh, scaly tail, um, who is mapped to Yamaya, who is mapped to the Virgin of Regla. This is a very complicated story. Stick with me. No, I'm with you. So, okay. What happens with the Virgin of Regla? She in this somewhere supposedly in the sixth century, Saint Augustine, oh. who is in northern Africa, okay. right, orders the um, the creation of a statue of the Virgin of Regla. Okay. I can. The story is really incredible. He says his mother told him about a dream where she was um, standing out. On a rule, like a, a, a like a ruler thing, yeah, right. Okay. La regla. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he came to her, and then he became the author of the rule, which is a way of conducting religious matters, right? Okay. So the Virgin of Regla is like the Virgin of the Rule. Okay. Okay. So then, this statue supposedly had a whole long history. Got buried. Got dug up. We don't know if it was really buried or some just enterprising guy discovered it in the 16th century and was shipped to the Americas. Okay. The Virgin of Regulus statue. Okay. And because of their history with the Middle Passage, okay. this is the Cuban, African, Afro-Cuban population, um, the, the boats and water and the, and the Atlantic Passage is very, very significant spiritually for them. Yeah. They took on the Virgin of Regla as their patron saint, and they made her into a black virgin who has her own church in Havana. And you see, if you Google it anytime, La Virgen de Regla and Yemaya, they worship the Virgin of Regla, and they have a a yearly procession where they take a figure of her down to the water, and they... um, they throw flowers on the water and so on. Now, why is she black? Because she started out, she, she could be black because she came from North Africa and okay. Augustine made there, right? Yeah. But she, some of them say that she wasn't black. She didn't start out black, but became black because she did the same journey, the slavery journey. Oh, wow. And in order to be their protector, she became like them. Yeah. Oh, so oh. she is depicted. <laughs> it's an that, amazing like, that story. That hits me like right here. Like, of course she did. <laughs> of course she did. She became your protector, and she became black to protect you. I'm like, uh. <laughs> it's so beautiful the way people like like have things to like hold. Oh God, it yeah. It's absolutely. Oh my God! Like mythology, so the human psyche is so amazing. So amazing. Okay, so she sounds rad. Okay. <laughs> she is rad. Yeah. And, and during, um, uh, in the run-up to the Cuban Revolution, actually the revolutionaries stole her her statue <gasps> from the church as a way to incite rebellion. 
oh against God. the Batista government. Government. Oh my God. Eventually they were caught, you know, and yeah. but the and the image, but the image took a while to get back there. Um, anyway, she's very significant, huge um, Saint Day uh, celebration, and very much attached to this to Yamaya, yeah. the Afro, uh, the Orisha, the Afro Caribbean Orisha. Okay, Yamaya also appears in Brazil, um, uh, and she, where she, her original, if if you will is actually Yemaya back in Portugal, mm -hmm. who's this kind of, you see statues of her on, on, on coastlines, you know, they put statues of mermaids and what, and she's basically a human shaped woman. She looks kind of, kind of, um, conservative, okay. <laughs> she's, you know, fully covered up and her arms are outstretched and she's white oh. and she has a starfish crown. So she, um, she maps then to the Yemaya version in, in Brazil, where she becomes black again. Now, this is a huge thing. The idea of, of a white virgin or a white saint or a white spirit or deity becoming black is so powerful. Um, I, I think it's really important to pay attention always to the color of the saints in, in their representations, certainly in the Yemaya pictures. Um, and... Again, in Brazil, there's an annual festival of Yamaya where they um, go down to the water and they send off little boats with little figures of, of Yamaya. I've seen pictures of this. It's like a, a New Year's on the beach, like wearing white kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So in the Caribbean, whether in Brazil and, and Haiti and Cuba and uh, other, the Afro-Latin American world, Yamaya slash... La Sirene slash Ersuli slash um, the Virgin of Regla is an incredibly powerful and empowering figure. Mm -hmm. It it's a figure that has been along the journey yeah. with you know the whole history of slavery. It has made the journey. It, it protects. It's a very protective figure. It's the goddess of the ocean and can be very powerful and dangerous. But it's also um, it also takes care of families and it represents fertility and mm -hmm. really positive values. Yeah. So I, I find that story particularly uplifting. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. It's, I mean, one of the things that's always interested me and in, in every interview is like the figure of a mermaid, how, how the imagery shifts and what, um, they can mean to different people in different situations and like the evolution of one mermaid figure from uh, like saint statue to like the all-powerful like protector goddess uh, like mm -hmm. so it's so cool yeah um, I think for me that the the Caribbean or the the afro Latin American version of Yemaya is it's an incredibly positive figure, and it's also um, completely original. It, mm -hmm. it has not, except in the case of the Mami Wata, mm -hmm. which was a separate story, um, this is something that is homegrown. It's not been shaped by ethnographers. Yeah. It, but it is, it's obviously, it is present in contemporary arts. Um, people make voodoo drapeau, drapeau rather, or voodoo banners, a lot of them with these figures, and it presumably partly because they sell. But 
it is seriously meaningful um, mermaid. Yeah. That also makes me be like the European... It just sounds cooler. Like, the European one were like, I don't know, they're kind of going to drown you, and they're mean. It's like, that's a nice story, but have you heard of? (laughs) You've heard of. Yeah. I'm I'm also just looking at at an image right now of uh, Miss Universe 2018. Oh. uh, Who was Miss Peru, or Miss Peru in the Miss Universe contest. And she's dressed up as a mermaid. Oh my god! Because Amazon also has a mermaid tradition. Oh, what's that tradition? Again, the water spirits, uh, fertility. um, They they can kill you, but they can also really help you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I like that you never really know. You're like, I should probably just hedge my bets and be nice, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't. I mean, they're very tempting and they're very beautiful and they're very powerful, but. Just like Mami Wata, a lot of the mermaids, if they give you something, they want something yeah. back. Yeah. That's right? fair. They'll, they'll ask for yeah. you back yeah. at some point. What kind of stuff do they want back? Do you know? Um, I think most of them tend to want observation. Ah, uh, okay. You know, worship and, and uh, attention, but it's never specified really, what they want back. So I guess um, in the Andean stories where they give you talent and they tune up your musical instruments, it could be the charango, it could be a couple of other kinds of instruments, um, I think you have to play for them. Okay. Or, you know, your performance as a musician is going to be judged. Yeah, Yeah. okay, fair. Okay, okay, fair. That... <laughs> that, that that's funny because it just makes me think. I, just being like a writer, I'm like, yeah. I always feel like if some mystical spirit gives you an idea, they're like, but we're gonna make you be good at it because it's just you have to like, you yeah, just serve me well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. I. I wanted to ask, there was a, when I was reading your paper, there was a story, this one just intrigued me because I, I, for some reason, I latched on the idea, um, but the, I, f- I forget where it was, but there was a group, there somebody was trying to record legends, and there was a group of what you were, like, was referred to as, like, senile old women that could, like, tell this, that had remnants of a story, um, and that, for some reason, that just interested me because I was, like, I like the idea of, like, an oral tradition that was, like, mm, barely there. And then also the idea that, like, senile old women could tell you it, but then you'd be like, well, they're senile. But then maybe they really know. <laughs> like, they're the only ones who have the tradition. <laughs> um, I'm looking for, for that. But um, I think that I think that's what I was talking about before, where it was... Um, Patagonian, the remnants of Patagonian indigenous tribes. So Patagonian Indians um, were suffered the same kind of, they were put on reservations, they were, you know, starved and, and um, really um, maltreated. Yeah. And, okay, and I, found, I found my reference here. It is these two um, ethnographers went down and we're talking to these Tehuelche. Ah, Indians. okay, okay. And so, first of all, there's the fact that by the time they were there in the 1960s, the Tehuelche were just a collection of remnants of other groups, other tribes, yeah. that had all been put in the same reservation. 
Okay. Um, in the 19th century, there was what was called the Conquista del Desierto, the conquest of the desert, where um, the Argentine government sort of systematically pushed the Indians, all of the Pampa Indians, back as far as they could, exterminating as many as they could. It was sort of like the old west. Yeah. Um, and so the the ethnographers get down there looking for sirena stories, and they say um, these women that they're talking to, first of all, there's just a handful of women. Uh-huh. You can't be sure they're Tehuelche, but are they Tehuelche just because they're there, or were they from some other group? Oh, okay. And oh. then they're very confused when these women, when these ethnographers are asking them about mermaids or sirenas. It says, um, they said, um, there are numerous deliberate silences. Like whenever we made a reference to the El Al cycle, which is a, one of the sirena cycles, uh-huh. um, this, this one woman would become mute and then take refuge in forgetfulness. <laughs> and this was repeated. Um, and, and you have to wonder how these ethnographers didn't, see that they were introducing ideas yeah other than drawing out right um right and as they went on they were there for like almost a year no they were there for long longer time and the stories got more and more coherent to the ethnographers as time went on gotcha okay so and more elaborate yeah so like they would go go back in, you know, 1963, the woman doesn't really understand what you're talking about by the LL cycle. Right. <laughs> Which is a, you know, it's in a way of identifying a particular myth, legend, okay. piece of lore, right? Yeah. And the next time they come back in 1965, they seem to know a little more uh-huh. about the LL cycle. Uh-huh. Because you told them about it. So now they're like, they're oh, yeah, that them. thing. <laughs> let, let me remember my story. Sure, I'll help you with this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, and then by 1967, they have like the whole story down right. pat. So early encounters, yeah. they're saying, um, we recognize this kind of silence as a strategy of resistance to preserve their beliefs and practices. No, it's just outsiders. Yeah. But I think, and I, this was a long time ago. Yeah. Ethnographer, ethnographic practice has improved. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. But I can't help but wonder whether the opposite wasn't happening. They're just teaching these women the cycle that they want to hear about. Right, and I think this is a, a problem with, like, anthropology, too. Like, just by the presence of your observation, you're you're influencing the thing you're observing. Yes. Yes, or, like, exactly. studying. And, I, yeah. and today, anthropology and ethnography is a very different field. Mm-hmm. But what I have to think... Argentina was the first country in Latin America to receive a translated version of The Little Mermaid, right? (gasps) Somewhere in the 1930s. Um, And practices were not as... The idea of ethnocentrism and an ethnocentric um, set of questions influencing your your subjects was simply not as in the forefront of their minds at that point. Right. So, anyway. <laughs> so that's also interesting because I I was noticing that in your paper I had not thought about the idea that the Little Mermaid for like Western 
culture is, especially right now, since the Disney movie and everything, it's like the foremost mermaid story. Um, but I had not thought about in like previous centuries that there would be translated versions that people would be like bringing with them or would have introduced like around the world. And then where that melds with other stories. Like, that's, right. So yeah. these Argentine ethnographers had yeah. read The Little Mermaid. Yeah. The Elal cycle seemed to them to be um, somehow uh, equivalent yeah. or yeah. have some elements of that. And so they went and asked these remnants of, of, of diverse tribes to tell them essentially about the little mermaid in their own tradition. <laughs> <laughs> like they're like you have this too, right? Which I think <laughs> when I was reading your paper I was like, oh this is this is this point I think is very interesting. I want to make sure that people hear it because I feel like when you Google mermaids and you're like, I want to hear some more mermaid stories, most of the like basic articles that come up are like, there are mermaid legends from all around the world. But what they don't say is that the where there are indigenous mermaid stories, they're not going to be like the like the ones that Westerners brought in, and they're not, and they might also be by now what we know of them. They might have been influenced already. They might not be the same kind, and they they might right. have a completely different origin as well. Right. Yeah. So yes, every culture in the world has a, a serpent woman or a serpent spirit, right? Mm -hmm. um, Christianity ha happens to have married, you know, Eve to the serpent via the apple, yeah. right? And, and the mermaid sort of comes, that idea of temptation and fall comes yeah. out of it. But everybody has some sort of, whether it's a fertility god or water goddess, or everybody has some version of, I guess, what we think of as sirens, right? Mm -hmm. The original sort of female water being, yeah, right? But the enormous power of U.S. culture and U.S. film, yeah. especially U.S. popular culture in the world, has completely shaped um, the images of mermaids from China to, I mean, yeah. if you look at, there's Chinese mermaids, there's Japanese mermaids, there's Korean mermaids, and they look like the little mermaid. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think, it's very interesting to see the process of those uh, metamorphoses, and that that whole book, the the um, making a splash, is all about how that happens in different cultures. Mm -hmm. So I was I was rereading it today to prepare for this interview, and it really struck me how successful the Little Mermaid, specifically mm -hmm. the Ariel kind yeah. of mermaid, has been in in the popular images of many cultures. Yeah. I often sometimes think, like, okay, if, you know, something happened, there was an asteroid, and only remnants of, like, our current culture, like, existed, they're going to be like, okay, so they were really into, like, some old Greek guys, and then there was this girl, Ariel, and she seems to be in charge of everything. Right. Like, there was some, some god named Disney that had a daughter named Ariel, and they worshipped her. And I'm like, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't wait for the new, the live-action version to come out. I'm wondering if they're going to try to correct a little bit of, yeah. you know, the last one, the last Little Mermaid was a little bit, 
there there was a lot that was questionable if you're looking for faithfulness to the Hans Christian Andersen right. Right, course, exactly. No parent in their right mind would take their child to see the real Hans well, Christian. And so many people do. I, I have a, I have a, somebody coming on the podcast to talk about the history specifically of the Little Mermaid, um, uh-huh. because so many people don't know that like they haven't read. They maybe read a children's version of the Hans Christian Andersen, but they don't know that like it ends tragically. It's like a weird plot twist ending with like a Victorian morality tale and it's like not at all what you're when you're like oh I want to read the like source text for Ariel you're like oh this is not at all what I thought I was getting right. well you know he <laughs> writes that same story over and over again like the the, the red shoes is the sa- same mm-hmm. story you know she um out of hubris the little urchin yeah you know um, she wants the red shoes, and once she gets the red shoes, she can't stop dancing. It's this thing with the feet, right? Yeah, the, Just like the Little Mermaid. Yeah. Um, and what I, I like about the Latin American mermaids and sirens is none of them have this punishment for rising above your station. Yes. Yes. And they don't have your evil. You're an evil feminine spirit looking to destroy men. Mm-hmm. None of them have that aspect. That's sort of vindictive. And that's so, I think that's so important because I don't think that people notice it on like a casual level. But when you think about like the entire framework of how people imagine something, if it begin if it begins with like, don't rise above your station, um, like you'll be, you'll be punished for being at all alluring or in any way tempting someone from a true path of, you know, something, mm-hmm. if that's like how you're, your the myth your mythology is shaped it's going to influence your actions and your reactions versus if right. your origin story is like there's a maternal figure that takes care of you and an all-powerful g- goddess and like and i think it's just so it, i think people in like the scientific world that we live in today are like it's either like do they exist or do they not exist and i've always much more interested in the question of like what do you think mermaids are because i think that's the most revealing the revealing uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. I, I also, I think that mermaids um, are extremely empowering in our culture at this moment. Yep. And I hope that the new live action film lives up to that. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the Coney Island um, mermaid parade, yep. or if you look at mermaid um, communities, yeah. there's activist mermaids. Yeah. Um, you know, mermaids are out there protecting the ocean. <laughs> they are educating children teaching them to swim yeah and teaching them how to be themselves i mean there's this one professional mermaid hannah i can't remember her last name Hannah who, the mermaid who, yeah yes yeah hannah the mermaid, uh-huh. who they are they adopt a mermaid identity mm-hmm. in order to do something that's bigger than you know the mean sort of venal interests of the original yeah that, that christians imputed to mermaids right yeah and and also, they are all about being yourself. Mm-hmm. As I was giving this talk um, last week to a, a bunch of women who are, who are disabled, mm-hmm. it became clear to me that mermaids are, all of these mermaid groups mm-hmm. are extremely accepting, and they are about ex- um, being yourself mm-hmm. on your own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just the last interview that we had on the podcast. There's a charity in the UK that works with um, gender diverse children and families and supporting them. And they're called mermaids. And that was the exact, um, all of the children in the original support group, they were all identified with mermaids. And and that's why mermaids became the symbol of um, 
like the freedom being themselves like having it like a in that beautiful identity to um kind of like carry them through or bring them together yeah well the 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 reason that mermaids were classified as monsters was that they were hybrid so they mixed you know more than one identity together uh, so they could travel they 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 transgressed the boundaries between air water and earth uh-huh. and um any hybrid was automatically considered a monster, you know. Oh, in, in that's what makes a monster. Christian. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, so mermaids are the are the sort of quintessential hybrid. Mm-hmm. They're a hybrid that's unstable. Mm-hmm. They go from bird woman to fish woman to this to that. Um, and when you are able to cross from one milieu or or world or category into another, or when you bring them together in one body, that's a, that's a sort of fundamental quality um, that defines you as monstrous. And so people who are gender fluid or um, transgender, I think should look at mermaids mm-hmm. as, as almost a, it, it is a very good metaphor mm-hmm. um, for, and, and it also because mermaids have power, I see how, how that would work to give them power. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I think it's something that's kind of, uh, I don't know if anybody like, has, like, academically studied it, but, if, like, anecdotally, that's, like, the mer- that's the purpose that I have seen mermaids serve, um, in that community, and, yeah, I just, I think the evolution, too, of, the, of like, what mermaids can continue to mean, mm-hmm. I think is so exciting. Yeah, I think they're getting less vampy mm-hmm. and more but it, you know the vamp is part of the power mm-hmm. right but the idea of activist mermaids is something that's very attractive to me mm-hmm. to, to see how people are using mermaid identities and mermaid communities to to fulfill their own um, need for meaning in life mm-hmm. but also to improve the lives of others yeah um, so to bring this back, I would love to know, I should have asked in the beginning, but because I want to talk about your book, but I also just want to know for you, how did you get interested in mermaids and mermaids as monsters, and how does this all, how does this all connect for you? So, I think I started with Christopher Columbus. <laughs> so, of course! He's a fascinating person, uh, personality. Yeah. Um, so... When I was studying um, colonial and essentially the literature of the discovery, the quote-unquote discovery and conquest of the Americas, um, I, I read a lot of Columbus's diaries, which are they're sort of problematic in terms of who actually wrote them. <laughs> um, but his first communication to Europe uh-huh. on arriving in what he didn't know was the New World, but arriving in the, at the Caribbean... He says he was looking all around for monsters because the expectation was over the hill, you know, in Sicily or Ethiopia, people have long ears that reach the ground or they live on air or they have two heads or no head. You know, there are these people that are different from us that live in other places and have different habits. Um, And that came from different medieval traditions. And he had read He'd read all the books by Marco Polo. He'd read all the um, medieval bestiaries. He'd read all the the physiologists. He'd read um, Pliny. So he knew about these different kinds of people you could expect 
over there, okay. not here, us, right? Yeah. So he looks at the new world, and he looks at the island where he had landed, and you know he travels around the Caribbean for a little while, and he talks to people, and he says the indigenous people here are you know very beautiful and well made, and and timid and generous, and I have not seen any monsters here. I have not seen any monstrous people, um, and nor has anyone told me about any monsters. He literally said that. Oh, wow. And this is a letter he sent back um, to the sovereigns, actually to that one of their um, agents, and basically just to stake his claim as discovering this okay. whole thing. So, but he says, but by the way, you should know that at the entrance to the Indies, because he thinks he's, he's in India, at the entrance to the Indies, there's two islands. And on one of them are people who eat human flesh. And they are the Kariba, Kaniba. He calls them the Kaniba, and that's Kanibales. Okay. He invented that word. Oh, right? Okay. Uh, and that's why the Caribbean is, is called the Sea of Cannibals. It, is, it means oh. named Japanese flesh, human flesh eating Caribe Indians. So the so anyway, so we'll leave that on one side. So he says, yeah. we have this one island of, of people who eat human flesh. And then on this other island, he says, we have war, warrior women who don't live with men. And they get together with the caniba, the cannibales, every now and then to have children. And then they separate. And if, if it turns out to be a boy, they kill it or send it back over to the Kaniba Island, uh -huh. and if it's a girl, they raise it to be a warrior. Well, what is he identifying? He's got cannibals on one hand, which uh -huh. before that were called anthropophagi, okay. um, and Amazons yeah. on the other island. Oh, zombies and Amazons, like your book. Sorry. Yeah, he, these three things, he talks about the mermaids that, that aren't as pretty as he thought they would be. Yeah. He talks about, he essentially says Amazons are here and cannibals are here. Wow. Um, and that sets up I, the, the idea that if people are eating human flesh, mm -hmm. if native peoples in the, in the, what turns out to be Americas are eating human flesh, then they might, they obviously aren't Christian and they might not even be human. And therefore it's, it becomes a justification or a rationale for taking their stuff mm -hmm. and killing them or enslaving them. The Amazons provide a whole different set of <laughs> excuses. So as the conquistadors get farther and farther in and, and land on Tierra Firme, which is South America and, um, you know, the, the continent, um, they encounter Amazons as they go into the jungle. And every time they're beaten in a fight against indigenous people, they say, well, we were, we were beating the indigenous people and they were falling back. But then all of a sudden, these really tall, powerful <laughs> warrior women came out and egged them on. <laughs> and we had to fall back. <laughs> so that's why the Amazon is called the Amazon. Oh. It's Amazons. Oh, wow. Okay. And Patagonia is called Patagonia because the Patagonists are these giant, big-footed, giant people. Um, 
and that's what, who was rumored to be there. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, I thought I would find monsters when I went to this new world because like all the things that I imagined were, must be in this other world I haven't seen yet. All those things must be in the world somewhere. So I'm, I imagine that I will find them. So then I do find them. Right, and yeah. I'm going to India, which yeah. he also, he, he, he confuses India with China and Japan. Whoops. All in breath, right? <laughs> he calls it Sipako, which is Japan, and he's going to meet the great Khan, which is the Kuba Khan, or the, or the great Khan of, of yeah. the Chinese Empire. Yeah. Anyways, he's, he's completing them all, but he's, you know, when he meets the Caribe people, he calls them the Kaniba, the people of the Khan of oh. Again, okay. the cons, yeah, right? but wrong. <laughs> like, he's like, no, you guys, I got so far. I got so far. <laughs> like, like, but, but the thing to me that is so, it's so just, it flabbergasts me that he says, I have not found anybody monstrous, but you should know there are these two islands. Right. 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 I have not anybody monstrous, but you should know there's, a, there, this is also happening. Yeah. Right. You should know. I, yeah. Nobody told me about it. Where, yeah. How does he know this? Who told Where Yeah. Who told, yeah. Who told him about those islands? <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, some of the indigenous people did suggest that other indigenous people um, came and raided them. and uh, But we, it's really hard to tell, um, to prove we're pretty sure Columbus never saw anybody eating okay. uh, other human okay. beings. Okay. Right. He, okay. Yeah. Got it. So he also kind of has to be like, I haven't found anything monstrous like I thought I would, but I heard about this other thing, so don't worry, it's still there. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And as, okay. as it happens, Marco Polo, um, in his journey to the east, he has two islands that he describes that are called Masculia and Femina. Okay. And one is, you know, Inhabited by men and other warrior women. Yeah. And they get together every now and then to yeah. procreate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so I see why you would want to write a book from a to from Amazon to zombies because. Well, and yeah, yeah. And so zombies are also a really fascinating phenomenon, um, and not exactly not really part of voodoo, not the big part of voodoo that we. Uh, that, that I think they've been described as, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's just it's a so the way that monsters have been used in Ameri- in Latin America has been elites essentially have used them as metaphors for parts of the population that they didn't like, yeah. or Europe has used them as a way to envision Latin America as yeah. monstrous and exotic, yeah. right? Right, and that's so, I mean, just to, like, kind of bring it all, like, to bring it kind of all together, too, is, like, I'm just thinking back to, like, the art, some of the artwork that, and I'll try to link to some of it, that's, like, the stuff that's in your paper and stuff, but, like, back to this artwork of, like, the, I'm just thinking, like, the virgin and this mermaid that are there, and it's, like, both (laughs) are equally maybe imaginary, depending on what you think, you know? (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) That's actually... Yeah, that's an amazing, that's a really good point because um, one of the things I always try to explain to my students is, you know, we talk about Greek mythology and Amazon mythology and indigenous mythology. Really, when you think about it, mythology is what we call other people's religion. Yes, exactly. Right? Right. It's not, why is it mythology and ours religion? Yeah. We have 
and I, I have Christian mythology as part of my background, right? Yeah. So. Right, right. And, right, and then the way that things travel, the way that stories are evolve, or the, like, I don't know, it's just, it's just also interesting, like, where it comes from and where, where it ends up. Um, and then, wait, hold on, I'm really going to tie it together, it all kind of ends up a hybrid. Yay! Yes. All right. Well, this like endlessly attractive. (laughs) Exactly, endlessly attractive hybrid mermaid. Um, So this has been awesome. Um, Thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, I'm going to make sure that people can find your book um, and find uh, find. Is there anything I would love to find your book? And I know you have like an academic website. Is there anywhere else that? well, this this paper is on my um, academia dot yeah, yeah. um, Anybody wants to to know about the images that we were kind of referring to yeah. in this conversation, um, yeah, I'm going to continue to speak out on behalf of monsters Great. as much as I can, and I'll keep you posted about any further <laughs> presentations. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, no, definitely. Thank you so much. Um... Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend or leave a review. Reviews are really important because they help other mermaid lovers find us. The easiest thing to do is leave a review right in the app you are using to listen to this episode or leave a review on our Facebook page. You can find the Mermaid Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Mermaid Podcast and we always love to see you on social media. Again, we will have links to all of the mermaid news mentioned in this episode on our website, mermaidpodcast.com. Our mermaid jingle was recorded by Tori Scott, the world-famous cabaret singer. She performs internationally, and you can find her at itstoriscott.com. The Mermaid Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts that you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that makes a splash is on the Mermaid Podcast.